Welcome to the Ecom Breakthrough Podcast. Are you ready to unlock the full potential and growth in your business? You've already crossed seven figures in sales, but the challenge is knowing how to take your business to the next level. Join Josh Hadley, an eight-figure e-com business owner and investor, as he interviews highly successful business owners. Get ready, because you're going to learn specific actions you can take today to help your business reach its full potential and leave a lasting impact on the world. Welcome to the Ecom Breakthrough Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Hadley, where I interview the top business leaders in e-commerce. Past guests include Kevin King, Roland Frazier, and Stephen Pope. Today, I'm speaking with Ryan Dice, the CEO of The Scalable Company, and we're going to be talking a lot about business operating systems. This episode is brought to you by Ecom Breakthrough Consulting, where I help take seven-figure companies and help them grow to eight figures and beyond. If you've hit a plateau and want to know the next steps to take your business to the next level, then go to ecombreakthrough.com. That's ecom with two M's to learn more. All right. Today, I'm super excited to introduce to you Ryan Dice. Ryan is the founder and the CEO of The Scalable Company, digitalmarketer.com, and a founding partner at Scalable Equity LLC, a venture equity accelerator that builds and acquires B2B media and software brands. He is a best-selling author, founder of multiple companies, collectively employing hundreds around the globe, and one of the most dynamic speakers on business operating systems in the United States today. So welcome to the podcast, Ryan. Thanks for having me. It is not difficult to be among the most dynamic speakers about business operating systems, because uh, most people would consider that to be like watching paint dry. Um, but I think, it's, uh, I think it's pretty sexy stuff, so I appreciate that. Hey, and I, I agree as well. Typically, it is uh, it is one of those topics that most people, I think, tend to avoid, right? If you go to a conference and you're like, which one should I go to? I think the shiny object is always like the newest marketing hack, right? Or like yeah. social media. Um, and with your experience, obviously, running Digital Marketer, you're, you're well-versed in that. And I think you could argue you're one of the most well-versed in digital marketing itself. But today, we're going to be talking all about business operating systems. So Ryan, I was part of your War Room Mastermind group. That's where we first met and had followed you there at uh, Traffic and Conversion Summit and Digital Marketer for many years. But in War Room, you talked a lot about business operating systems and you would always kind of give presentations about, you know, hey, you need to implement like a company scorecard that's tracking like the KPIs. Um, I, one of the things that we just recently implemented was kind of like our performance reviews where you're um, structuring it based off of like the values and then also like their effectiveness in the business as well. And so I've been able to implement many, many of the tactics or strategies that you've shared over the years and have found them very impactful for my own business and wanted to have you share those with our audience as well. But let's kind of rewind the tapes a little bit, Ryan you know, you've been successful, you, you have multiple business ventures. So why are you doing scalable now out of all the different things that you could be focused on? Sure. I mean, uh, all I've ever done is talk about what I'm doing, right? And, and, um, and, and a lot of that comes from the fact that I'm the kind of person who uh, I learn by talking. I, I don't know if you're like, you're not like that. I know for, you know, you, you actually sit there and like think about stuff, which is admirable. Um, there's some weirdos like me who the only way we can figure out what we think is to hear ourselves say it out loud. And that's just how I've always been. I've always learned the most when I shared. 
And so if you go turn the clock all the way back to 1999, when I made my very, launched my very first website, made my very, very first sale online, right? So I'm old and I've been at this for a while. Um, almost as soon as I did it, uh, I, I sought out ways to talk about and to share what I was doing. Um, and, and at the time I wasn't charging anybody for it. It wasn't like, let me see if I can make money uh, doing this. I wanted to, to share um, so that others would share with me and so that I could learn. And, um, and I was able to build, you know, a great uh, network and community at the time. It was a lot easier back then, way less of us doing it. And, and so that's what I've always done. And so I've always, you know, started businesses, scaled businesses, in some cases exited businesses. And, and along the way, I've always shared what I was doing. Now, the way that manifested itself in the early years was talking about marketing. And so it's, it's fun for me because I'm, I'm generally known as a marketer. Like people who don't like know me, know me, like the way that you do, um, they think about me as a marketer which I am, right? I am a marketer. But the whole reason I sought to figure out marketing was so I could sell my own stuff. I didn't identify as a marketer. And even when I talked about marketing, I never considered it to be a business. Um, and so, you know, you mentioned Traffic and Conversion Summit. We just had our 13th uh, Traffic and Conversion Summit. Um, we were three years into that event. We'd done that for three years before we finally said, hey, maybe this is a thing and we should turn it into a company. A lot of people don't realize that digitalmarketer.com was actually born out of Traffic and Conversion Summit 3. Because I was always like, this isn't a business. This is just me talking about what I'm doing so I can do, quote, unquote, real business. And, and, and so that's what Digital Marketer was. And so really all we're doing right now at the Scalable Company and Scalable.co, it's the same thing. Um, the difference is over the past decade, my primary focus has not been the tactical aspects of marketing. I still think it's critical. Um, but it's been, okay. What does it mean to scale? Uh, and so we talk about, and it's why I loved, um, you know, when you asked me to be on this show, I love that it's about going from seven to eight because zero to seven figures, we consider that to be like your first mountain, right? Ascending that first mountain. And that's when, yeah, you got to know marketing, right? It's when you need to know some basic hiring. Maybe you need a couple people, you know, some contractors, assistants, those kind of things, basic fulfillment, right? That's the zero to seven figures. What nobody tells you, is that scaling to eight figures, you know, from seven to eight, it's not like the mountain got higher. It's a fundamentally different mountain. It's a fundamentally different game and a fundamentally different playbook. And if you try to run the same playbook that, that you ran, you know, zero to six, six to seven, going from seven to eight, um, you're going to find that it doesn't work. Um, and you're going to find that uh, you get really discouraged and you think that you're broken or your business is broken. Uh, I know because I've been there. Uh, and so... At Scalable, it was like, all right, let's start talking about this stuff because nobody else really is in these terms. Not from the perspective of, I get growth. I know I know the growth game. And I also, I know the growth game so well that I know that growth is not enough. And so I figure a digital marketer, you know, I spent kind of the first 10 years of my career creating the problem of scale for a lot of people. Um, and so I figured I'd spend the next at least 10 years um, solving uh, the problems of scale uh, that have been created by growth. I love that. Well, and I love that you have hands-on experience, right? You you scaled your own brands, not even just one brand, but you've scaled multiple brands. You've seen what is working, what's not working. And that's what you, it's all about is like being able to take something that's already generated some, you know, existing traffic, right? You Or you've crossed that seven-figure mark, right? But now there needs to be a fundamental shift. And that's what I like that you're you're talking about here. So, I want to relate that this to our audience, right? So many of our e-com um, breakthrough listeners are brands that have maybe stumbled upon success, kind of like Becca and I did, where 
We did seven million or seven million. I wish we did seven figures, one million our first year on Amazon. Right. And so that was just us and a VA really that, that got things started. But now our team is fundamentally different. We now have 20 people uh, where we just crossed eight figures. Right. And so, Ryan, I want to ask you, why is it so important that once you kind of cross that seven figure mark, so to speak, that business operating system needs to be more of a focus for these entrepreneurs. Cause I think the, the shiny object syndrome is always, well, I could go get traffic from TikTok. There's other things that I could be doing to pour more gasoline on, you know, the, the fire that we got going right now, but why should people kind of take a step back and slow down to focus on business operating systems? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's two things at play here. Um, the first is diminishing returns of some of those previous efforts. And I'll, I'll talk about that second. Um, uh, the, the, the second big factor is just um, as your business does grow and as it does scale, if you're at the core of everything, right? What you've got to know is the bigger your business gets, right? The more your business owns you instead of the other way around. Uh, let me invert that. Um, the more valuable you are to your company, the less valuable your company is, right? And, and I can sum yeah. this up with a very simple visual. Um, if, if, you don't have to be like a planetary astrophysicist, whatever, to know that out there in the solar system, right, little things orbit around big things. You got moons orbiting around planets, planets orbiting around suns, right? We get that. Um, yep. The same is true in, in business. And so when your business is a small little startup, right, the mass that is you and your entrepreneurial energy, that is enough to get this thing launched, right? You're the planet, your business is the moon, Right. The thing is, if you're good at this stuff, if you achieve success, if you have all the things that you want, the mass of your company expands, right? And this moon becomes a planet and it becomes a planet that's frankly bigger than you. And so yep. the, the effect of that is that now we're being whipped around by our business instead of us being able to keep our business in orbit by ourselves. And that's because you're one person. You get 24 hours, period, and you're going to need to sleep some of those and probably eat and maybe want to hang out with people that you love, right? And so your mass as an individual is only so great. Your mass is what we call a you operating system, right? The operating system that is you, it's only so big. And so what happens is either you're going to limit and constrain the potential scale of your company um, by your own mass to keep it in orbit, or it's going to start flinging you around and you're going to get burned out. So the, the first great task of any entrepreneur is to get it scaled to the point where this even becomes a problem, right? Yeah. This, I want to be clear, like, if you're struggling with this, if you're burnt out, if you feel like your business is whipping you around, um, it owns you, you don't own it, if you feel captive to it, that's only happening because you've been successful, right? So on one hand, I want you to realize the urgency of the situation. On the other hand, I want you to cut yourself some slack. Because you wouldn't be feeling this if you hadn't done a lot of right things. Um, and so if we just acknowledge that, okay, great. If it can't just be me, it's got to be something else, then what is it, right? Well, you can't just say, well, let's just replace it all with software, right? Some automation yep. is, you know, there's a piece of that. You can't simply say, well, let me just throw a bunch of humans at it, right? Anybody who has ever been incredibly, like, frustrated and overwhelmed, and they, then they just, like, hired somebody at random and then threw it at, at the problem, knows that the problem didn't get fixed. The problem got worse, right? Yeah. Because um, you can't throw good people at a broken system. You can't. Good people don't fix broken systems, right? Broken systems will break good people. I've seen it time and time again. So 
What's the solution? The solution is you got to solve the systems issue. And you solve the systems issue by upgrading your operating system, upgrading from a U operating system um, to a, a more scalable operating system. And that is going to require, you know, the actual system side of the business. It's going to require the, you know, the processes. And the way a lot of people do it is wrong. We can get into the right way to build an operating system if you want to. Uh, I can yeah. tell you it's not just about creating a bunch of checklists, but that's what it's got to be. Uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing, and I, I want to come back to it, is um, diminishing returns. Right. Why do you need kind of this operating system? Why do you need a new playbook? Because you talked about like, oh, you know, we were on Amazon and just being listed on Amazon and doing basic, you know, search, Amazon search optimization got us 10 sales a day. Let's just say, yep. you go. And then we ran some Google ads and Google ads got us another 10 sales a day. Right. Well, those efforts in adding Google ads, that didn't just get you 10 sales a day more. That doubled your sales. Right. Doubled. Yep. Right. And then you begin to optimize all these things. And, and through the optimization, you go from, you know, 10 to 20. Um, so you're like, great, we doubled it over again. Now, now that's where we're making the leap from zero to six, you know, six to seven. And, and now you're going to say, OK, look, let's try Facebook and Instagram, Facebook and Instagram. Uh, it adds another 10 sales a day. Right. Well, 10 sales a day was all the sales in the world in the beginning. But now, you know, 10 sales a day going from you know, 20 up to 30, you know, we're now talking about a, a 30% increase, right? You know, 35% increase is kind of what we're looking at here. And now we're doing other little optimizations and maybe it's adding an extra five sales a day. Well, again, five sales a day would have been a 50% increase back in the early days, but now five sales a day, depending on the optimization, maybe it's a 10% increase. And now we're going to go yeah. and try TikTok and we don't quite have it figured out. It's not quite there in our market, and, but it's a lot of work uh, and it adds like three sales a day. And that's good. And again, in the beginning, it would have been 10% increase. Now, now it's like a barely a blip. So that's what I mean by diminishing returns. At some point, it's not just about layering on tactics or practicing random acts of marketing, right? It, it, it does need to be about creating the capacity within your business to go out and do the really big things where, you know, launching whole new product lines, uh, perhaps doing acquisitions, uh, going into traditional retail. Right. This is not the stuff that's going to happen through tactics. But at some point, the leaps we need to make to go from seven to eight can be iterative. It can't just be an extra, you know, five to ten sales here or there. So that's yep. why operating systems matter. Man, I love that. And I think we could break this down into finite detail with each of these things. Um, now, Ryan, I, I think I have a couple questions. Um, I want to go back to what you said earlier in terms of, you know, as you continue to scale, you're going to run into issues in the business or you might say, hey, I want to we need to figure out TikTok. Well, you can't just throw somebody at a problem, right? And just hire somebody and be like, I don't know, uh, go figure out TikTok for us. That's the way that we're going to grow, right? We made that mistake. I have my uh, one of my first podcast episodes like here's my top five mistakes that I've made in this journey to eight figures. And one of those early mistakes was like just willy nilly, just like hiring people and throwing them at problems without myself, like understanding how are we going to approach this problem in the business, myself learning a little bit about it and creating maybe a process or framework around how this is going to support the business and maybe a light SOP. So when this team member comes on, I've got some KPIs that I can track. I know what the goal is and I can tell somebody to go run towards that goal. So I, I completely align with everything that you're talking about because I've been on the opposite end of that of, yeah, this this is we're throwing people at this problem and we're not making any progress. So, Ryan, my question would be if if somebody does not have like a formal operating system in their business, like where do you even begin? Right. Could be you, a couple other people on your team. Maybe you have some SOPs, but where should people begin? 
Yeah, I think they, they need to start like so an SOP is really great. And then if you don't know, that's just a standard operating procedure. It's a fancy word for checklist. Let's call it what it is. It's a checklist on do this, then this, then this. Um, I think checklists and SOPs are great. Um, but the problem is, is they, they speak to a very specific narrow task, right? Uh, they speak to a, a narrow, um, maybe even a project that, that'll be repeated. But, it, but it's, fairly, it's fairly narrow and it's out of context uh, to the business as a whole. So I think we got to go, you know, start a little um, higher level than that. And, and we need to answer the question, okay, how do we as a company create value? Right. This is a question yeah. that, that very, very few um, founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs ask just at our core base level. How do we create value in the marketplace? Like, why do we exist? Now, that's a big question. So let me break it down a little bit further. Um, what every company does, and I don't care, you know, e-com software, you know, B2B services, um, you know, mom and pop, uh, brick and mortar retail. I don't care what you're doing. All companies do three things. We make stuff. We sell the stuff we make. We fulfill the stuff we sell. Okay, that's it. To, to even have a business, you had to have made something. And, and making could be you physically made it with your hands. It could be that you sourced it. It could be that you came up with intellectual property. You had an idea. There was a moment of innovation that got the thing launched, right? Um, yeah. Even if, like, let's say you are a franchise or a licensee, somebody else made it, and you're licensing what, what they made, but, you know, still something was made, okay? Something has to be there. There you go. So we make stuff, and then we sell it. So that's what we would refer to as a growth engine, like how do customers happen? And then there's, we got to fulfill it. So that's the fulfillment engine. Once we have a customer or a client, how do we fulfill on the promises made during the sales and marketing process? Those are the three things that businesses do. So anytime we're working with a client um, in Founders Board or one of our you know, accelerators, we always just say, okay, let's begin. Uh, let's make this customer facing and ask the question, how do customers happen? Right. We can we can answer that. How do we make stuff later on? But in general, let's assume we got some stuff. Right. Let's start yeah. the customer facing. How do customers happen? And the process that we use is not a checklist. Right. The process that we use is what's known as business process mapping. Right. We get a whiteboard. Um, we get post-it notes. And why I have them handy. I always have them here. And we just ask the question, OK, what's the triggering event? How does somebody find out about our brand? You know, and so if, if you're an e-commerce seller, it could be, well, they do a search on Amazon. Um, yep. It could be, well, they see our ad on Facebook or Instagram. Well, they see us on Pinterest, right? Okay, great. So each one of those sources gets a post-it note. Great. And then we just ask the question, then what happens? Well, then they go over to our product page, right? And it could be a product page on Amazon or it could be your own. And those may be two different processes that we keep on the same. But we just go, okay, great. Then what happens? Well, then they add it to their cart. Great. Then what happens? Then what happens? And what we want to create is a visual flow of how customers happen. And sometimes it's like, well, if they take the upsell, you know, and, and add that, then they go to this other place. And if they don't, they go here. There's all these ways to visualize, but it's a basic flow chart, right? Yep. And so we do this for how customers happen. We do it for, okay, great. Now that we've got a customer, right? So somebody bought something, then what happens? Let's keep the customer journey going. And, and if you will do that, you will have a visual flow. You could call it a customer journey, you know, but really, it's a business process map, but you will have a visual flow of how you create value as a company, how you acquire customers, how you serve the customers once you have them. So that really is the first step. Then you go stage by stage and you say, OK, which of these stages are really the most critical? Right. Which are the ones that we definitely not want to screw up? Right. Which are the ones that like this is kind of our secret sauce? Those yeah. are what you create your your SOPs around. Right. That's what you create your SOPs around. 
then you can come back around and say, okay, great. Let's go step-by-step, stage-by-stage and say, who's going to be accountable to making sure this gets done right? Not necessarily who does it, but who's going to be accountable to making sure that this particular stage right here is done right, right? Especially if it's what we call a power stage. We built an SOP for it. Now you go around all the people and what you're going to find if you do this for the first time as an entrepreneur, it's going to be me, 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 (laughs) me, me. And then you, but then you can begin asking the question, okay, I can't be accountable for all this stuff. I don't have time to do all this stuff. I'm not even the best at all this stuff. So whose name should be there? Is it somebody who's already on the team? Do we need to make a hire? But if you start with, this is our value creation process. If based on that, then you create checklists, playbooks, SOPs, right? Not at random, but like documenting exactly how we deliver value. Then you say, okay, now who? Who should be accountable for this? Who should be responsible? You never get into this issue again of throwing, you know, people at a broken system. We got the system, both the high level and the granular. We know who should be, you know, what type of person should be doing it. And then when they come aboard, we say, this is how you do the job. This is where it fits into the, what the work that you do fits in the broader, um, you know, fit, fits in the broader value creation process. That's what we do. That's what we have all of our clients do. And that's what we found actually works as opposed to just random acts of, we talked about random acts of marketing before. There's also yeah. random acts of SOPing. Uh, you don't want to do that either. It's true. Yeah. So going along those lines then, Ryan, how do you know uh, who should be your first hire, right? Um, is it kind of going along that customer journey, so to speak, or your value journey that we're talking about here? And is it identifying, you know, hey, actually our secret sauce is in product innovation, right? Like that's our secret sauce. That's where it seems like we're bringing a lot of value, especially on Amazon, right? You talk about, you know, bringing traffic. It's like, well, Amazon's brought traffic to you. Plus they have the fulfillment engine. So like they, they've tackled two big levers for a lot of people, right? Um, so if you identify like, hey, we're really good at product innovation or something like that, does that mean, hey, I should first hire out that product innovation or do I need to figure out a pro? Do I need to hire a project manager or is it an executive assistant? Like, how do you go through the process of deciding who to hire first and why? So let me answer the question by telling you what not to do. And then I'll come back around and give a more explicit answer. So what most people do, uh, and it's not what you should do is they go around and they look at all the stuff that needs to get done, right? And it's their name in all the boxes. And so what they say is, okay, I need to get somebody to help me with all of the little things so that I have more time to do these quote unquote important things, right? So I need to hire, you know, a a virtual assistant to help like answer my email and to to deal, deal with my scheduling. And, you know, I need to hire somebody else over here to, you know, respond to this or take care of that. And, you know, in this particular set, if I, if I just had somebody to help me do some of the pieces of this, you know, then, um, you know, then, then I could be more efficient. And what we're doing when we do that is, and the reason that's not what you do is you're what is known as the genius with a thousand helpers. Okay. Mm. And so you're not actually creating any additional space and freedom for yourself. You're just adding the management of other people and the tasking out of other people to your already cluttered to-do list. And that's why it doesn't work. And that's why ultimately yeah. these people wind up failing and we're like, oh, they suck. And they were supposed to help me and they're supposed to take time off. And they're not. They're just asking me all these questions. and I don't have time to answer all these questions. Right. It's because we didn't hire someone to own a critical aspect of the value creation process. We hired somebody to help us continue to own that process. So what I would encourage you to do is look at the value creation flow and to say, what are the critical tasks and processes that I don't like and I'm not particularly good at, but I'm currently being forced to do? 
Okay. So it's incredibly critical. It's incredibly important, but you don't necessarily like doing it. And, and, and you don't necessarily, uh, you're not necessarily the best in the world at it. So let's say again, you know, you, you're running an e-commerce business and you really love the product side of things. You love the innovation and the sourcing. Um, you love, um, you know, thinking about the packaging and the positioning, but you're getting the bulk of your traffic, let's say from, you know, Pinterest and Instagram. And really, yeah. you don't geek out that much on Pinterest and Instagram, but you're, you're good enough at it, right? So what people would say is like, I guess I'm going to get somebody to help with the photography and maybe somebody can write some of the descriptions and do a little bit of the survey. Screw that. Say, I need a head of marketing that can own this entire section of this and mm. hire big, hire up and let them build out the team. Now, why don't we do that? Okay. We don't do that because we're scared. Um, we're scared because that person that we're going to hire, well, they're going to be a more expensive person. And I, and I don't know if we can really afford that right now. And so we don't make that big hire. Right. And we're also a little bit nervous to make that hire because because it's the thing that we're not as good at. How do you yeah. know that we're hiring the right person? So the way that you cover the second piece is you get help. Right. If you suck at marketing, but, you know, you need a marketer, then get somebody on your advisory board, get in a, in a group with smart um, with smart marketers where they can say, well, you can go to them and say, hey, will you kind of help me build out like who this should be? You know, what should the job description look like? What type of experience level? And maybe even help with the interview process. Okay, get somebody in your corner to help. That's how you do that. Even if you got to pay them a little bit. We've hired consultants before to help us with an interview process. Some of the best money we've ever spent. Um, mm. And so, but truly, if you've got an advisory board or a network, just ask for help. I'm sure you got friends in the industry that, that would help you. So get get over to that one. Okay. You're the CEO. You're, this will not be the last time you hire for a job that you know nothing about. Okay. It's very figure outable. So let's talk about the, the investment side. What people don't realize is that, uh, let's say you, you got to hire somebody and let's say it's a, it's a big role. They're going to make 120 grand a year. They made 10,000 a month. Okay. Uh, two things. Number one, uh, they come with a 12 month finance plan. Okay. So it's not like you hire somebody for 120 grand a day and you got them a, cut them a check for 120 grand a month. Okay. Yep. You're going to pay this person approximately $10,000 a month plus 18 to 20% for all the other stuff that goes along with it, taxes, insurance, what have you. Um, or you can hire two or three helpers to help you do all the other little stuff. And guess what? Collectively, that's going to cost you at least that much, if not. But mm. they didn't actually remove anything from your plate because they can't actually, at lower level employees, entry level folks, they can't own a result. And so you're going to work with them a lot longer. You're going to have to invest a lot more time in training them in, in managing them, um, you're going to give them a lot more time, right? Where you're going to go and be like, oh, yeah, I mean, it's been six months. And they're not helping a lot, but they're just learning all this stuff, right? Whereas you bring somebody in, you know, for 120 grand, 150 grand, who cares? They got experience. High level people should be accretive, meaning they should be paying for themselves in the first 90 days. Well, they're gone. Yeah. And that sounds harsh, but you know who gets that? High level people. They mm. get that. Experienced people get that. And they're not going to take a job unless they know they can do it. And so yep. you figure, let's say that you're going to pay them $15,000 a month, right? $15,000 a month. Well, they're going to take off a massive chunk. So just in not having to worry about this, you're going to be able to make that up piece of cake. Okay. But let's compare it to the option B, right? You're paying this 15 grand a month and you're going to know in 90 days, they're paying for themselves in 90 days. So really it's a $45,000 bet. And, and now by yep. the way, we, we bumped this person up to 165 grand, whatever in, in salary, just so we're clear. High level person. You're not hiring people that you know, expensive, but let's say it's 15 grand. Now let's go back and say that we've hired um, two people at $4,500 a month. Okay. Right. 
So now we're thinking, okay, we're at about nine grand, throwing an extra like, you know, 10 grand. They're really helping us out. We're not getting any gains from anywhere else because we're managing these people and we're trying to help right. them. We're trying to make them successful. And, but they're asking us a lot of questions and we're getting a lot of shoulder taps and, hey, do you have a minute? And, hey, I can't move forward until I get your feedback on this, like that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. we're not actually gaining any capacity. We're not actually getting a lot more done. You're actually more frustrated. But because you know it's not, quote, unquote, their fault, you know, you're eight months into this thing. And you're only just now beginning to ask the question, maybe I made the wrong decision. So you're a full 12 months into this deal. You know, you're almost triple yeah. what you have invested with the individual. You haven't gained anything and you have to start all over again. And that's when you declare, well, maybe I just might, I should just keep my business small. Maybe scaling it to eight figures. I shouldn't do that. It's too much work. Employees suck. I'm just going to have it be a small seven person kind of thing. It'll be a little lifestyle business. Yeah, maybe it could have been more, but I don't want to mess with that again. Hmm. I don't know if anybody else ever said that, but I hear it all the time. And it comes on the heels of a massive hiring spree, uh, being a genius with a thousand helper, not actually making the call to hire the big functional pro to come in um, and to take significant stuff off your plate. So that's how you do it. Start with, I'm not that good at this and I don't really like it. Hire a pro to do that. Then slowly begin, hand, not you know, as quickly as possible, but responsibly begin handing off the other things. Until eventually you can look at your entire value flow and you're not, your name is not in any of them. That should be the goal mm. of every entrepreneur. That's when freedom happens. Yeah, man. I, I love that, Ryan. And I've already got a few mindset shifts just as you were talking about that. Um, I think that the common, I think, thing that you hear people say or preached at you is that you can't hire somebody unless you know, you know, what you're hiring for or like creating that, you know, job description, you mentioned like being able to go to advisors or other people that are more experienced in, let's say, the marketing realm, so to speak, right? That could actually help you craft the right job description, set KPIs and things like that Um, versus the person that has to go in there and, hey, I'm going to go hire this marketing person. Well, first, I have to go figure out marketing, right? Because I need to learn how it works. Then I can hire it out. Why, you know, break down that barrier? Why? Why is that? Because it's, that's not the way that any real company actually works. You're telling me that Jeff Bezos said, um, before we can build out any significant fulfillment centers, I have to learn every aspect of robotics. Come on. Like anybody who says that, they're just either incredibly inexperienced and naive, or they're so freaking arrogant as to believe that they're the only ones that can possibly figure this stuff out. Um, and, mm. and then they can teach it to somebody else. Yep. Horse crap. There's so many functional things where people have been doing this for their entire lives. And you're saying, like, well, I'm not going to hire somebody who's who's actually a pro at this. I have to first figure it out myself and then I'll teach it to somebody. This is not the way anything works. I'm not going to hire a heart surgeon until I learn heart surgery myself. Then I'll explain <laughs> it to somebody who I guess maybe went to med- medical school, but maybe not. I don't know. The point is, if I know it, then I should be able to share it with somebody else. Then they'll know it and then they can do it for me. It is just incredibly yeah. asinine, um, limited thinking. It's not true. It's not the way that real business is done. And anybody who's saying it is just wrong. They're, they're yeah. wrong. And if you think it doesn't even make any freaking sense, it's not how any real business works. It's just wrong. Now, am I sympathetic? Of course I am because I've said the same stupid crap before. But it doesn't make it any less stupid crap. No, you don't have to learn it yourself. If you do, you will simply burn yourself out and stall the growth of your company. You know, Ryan, I think like I've already got a lot of takeaways from our our conversation, you know, because 
I was in that, you know, kind of field of, hey, you know, before you can hire this out, you've got to go figure this out yourself so that you know what to look for when you're hiring this person, you know. And we just hired our VP of operations who he's already coming. He he worked in supply chain at Procter and Gamble. Like he worked at another CPG firm for seven years, took them from 10 to 50 million. Right. So he's already playing at a higher level. And I've already seen him come in and be like, this could be better. This could be better. This could be better. And I'm like, oh, yeah, th- those are things I, I, I did not know. Slash, I can't train you on those things. And so I agree with kind of what you're saying there, Ryan, in terms of like, I think that's a mindset shift that I wish I would have had earlier. And that actually probably would have sped up our path to eight figures had I said, hey, instead of going out and hiring a marketing specialist that's a, a virtual exit, a virtual assistant, right? That I'm just adding to my management plate at this point of like, all right, now I've got another meeting that I have to do every single week. Um, just go straight to the top of saying, I need to find somebody that's going to own this department. My question on that though, uh, Ryan, would be how do you bridge that gap of, okay, yeah, this might be a $150,000 uh, team member that we're about to bring onto the company. You know, that's going to be, you know, Maybe tight, maybe not, but like, how do you bridge that gap? Because I think that is the mental gap of like, yeah, I could hire five VAs to make up that $150,000 person. Um, how do you bridge that gap? Yeah, I mean, and the gap is twofold, right? So the gap is real and the gap is imaginary. Um, so we talked about um, the first thing, that you, the first gap that you have to bridge is what we were just kind of talking about, what you alluded to. And I'll give some grace to other people like us who believe the I've got to figure it out first. A lot of this is imposter syndrome. Okay, a lot of us, especially those of mm. us who are accidental entrepreneurs, we didn't graduate with MBAs from the best colleges. We weren't funded by the best, you know, VC or private equity backed kind of groups. It's just us in our spare bedroom, figuring this crap out as we go along. And we live in a constant state of, of, of fear that somebody's going to figure out that we don't know what we're doing. And I think part of the reason that we don't hire these experts um, and these specialists is because we most fear that they're going to figure us out. Right. Mm. Why would anybody with this background want to come and work for little old me? Okay, Um, so here's the first thing you have to understand. Number one, um, as an entrepreneur, what you do is very different and very difficult for them to figure out, too. And the best operational talent um, who they really know their craft. Guess what? Um, They respect yours. Okay, they respect yours as well. Right. Like ballers respect other ballers. Right. They just do. And maybe what you do is different, but they still respect yours. So there's no, you shouldn't, and it's easy for me to say, like, so don't have imposter syndrome. I know it's tough, but if you go through this enough and you own what you're good at and you don't pretend to be good at everything, then um, people respect that. And, and there's no secret. That's why you're hiring them, right? It's only going to piss yeah. these people off if you try to pretend like you got this VP of ops coming in and, and, you know, first week in there, you're like, all right, I'm glad you're here. Let me tell you all the stuff that I know about this, right? That's not going to impress somebody, <laughs> right? If you approach with humility and be like, look, I'm really good at the stuff I'm good at. Obviously, I'm not good at the stuff you're good at. That's why you're here. Super happy that you're here. People appreciate that. Okay. And, and if mm. they're being hired for a senior level position, uh, they want to know that, that they're probably the best there. Right. And so, um, so that's the first kind of gap to overcome is that imposter syndrome. You mentioned the financial gap. Um, it's an investment. It's an investment like anything else. How do you overcome that decision to make that first, you know, ad buy, you know, make that commitment to that agency that's yeah. going to, you know, take your stuff and put you, you believe there's going to be a return on the investment. You believe it'll ROI. How did you make that first decision to make that 
really a big inventory buy, mm. right? I remember the first time we bought a container load of stuff uh, from a supplier, you know, in China. And it's like, you know, we're going to have about 80 grand, you know, floating on the water for an extended period of time tied up. Yeah. Why did we do that? Because we believed it would turn into 200 some thousand dollars when it landed, right? We believed there would be a return on that investment. Uh, people yeah. are the same. And, and it's the reason why I would encourage you spend more on better. Okay. Make bigger investments in less places, make bigger investments in less people. Because when you do it, not only are you more likely to have success, you're also more likely to take it seriously and to say, yeah. okay, this is the hire we need to make. If we make this hire and, it, and, it, and they crush it, what will that then enable us to do that we can't do today? And you're going to ask the difficult questions and come up with a business case, right? What is the business case for making this hire? And if yeah. you can't paint a picture of a positive return on investment, don't make the freaking hire. Yeah. So the question isn't, can we afford it? The question is, will the investment ROI? Will there be a positive return on investment? If so, over what period of time? I've already told you it should be three months, six months at the absolute worst. So go ahead and plan for six. Okay, so if this person comes in and adds no value, what's our six-month risk? And yeah. do we have that? And look, if you don't have a, if you don't have six months to hire to afford to hire one person, that, that if that amount of money were just to be lit on fire, that that would essentially ground your business, then I guess you can't make that hire right now, mm -hmm. right? Maybe that's a bit, maybe you need to wait a little bit, build up a little bit more of a, you know, cash reserve so that you feel comfortable making it. But we're just not talking about that much money if you're a seven-figure business. We're just not. Yeah. It's not that much money. And, and it's not, probably isn't going to take six months. You know, and, and if you're three months in and it's an utter freaking disaster, cut them loose right then and there. You can't afford to do anything otherwise. You'll be a lot more responsible. You'll be a better steward of your resources um, if you're a little bit scared in the front end. Part of the yeah. reason we let headcount go up is because it's easy to hire another $36,000 a year person. It's easy to hire another, you know, $20 an hour, you know, VA doing whatever. Um, these things build up, we turn around, and it's more than that big hire. Uh, and it's also just a much bigger time and energy suck. Um, and yet we're afraid to make the investment that's more meaningful. That's this is just so true. saying I'm going to buy Apple instead of I'm going to buy some random penny stocks. Yeah, that's so true. And I think that so many people tout like how big's your team, right? As though the number of team members you have indicates your success as a business owner, right? And I think it's better to be, instead of like, oh, I've got five VAs, right? So that's adding to my headcount. But if I hired one expert, like they would be crushing everything and it would be less management. And it's actually somebody that, knows how to drive results and knows how to show up and we'll make stuff happen. Um, so with that, Ryan, I also wanted to ask you, like, are there any other like pitfalls that you see, you know, as we're running up on time here, what other pitfalls or common mistakes do you see entrepreneurs make as they're building out their team? They want to scale uh, that we can kind of sum things up here. Yeah. I mean, if I think about kind of as a CEO, my, my job is to automate everything and, and automation doesn't necessarily mean through software. My rule is if I don't have to do it, it's automated, okay? Mm. So um, the first thing that I want to automate is all of the execution, all the doing of the value creation, right? And we talked about how you do that, right? You got to map those value flows. You got to figure out what are the power stages. Let's We're going to, you know, build SOPs around those. We're going to assign responsibility. If, if that's me, then I've got my hiring plan. That's how you automate the execution. The next thing that we want to begin to automate is the optimization part. Right. Because um, the next thing that I trap I see entrepreneurs get themselves in is they're the only one that can fix stuff when it breaks. They're the only ones who can go from good to great. We got to get get out of that. 
So that's where you talked about the scorecards before, right? It, you should have very simple, um, I believe in manual scorecards, where your people, it, it's clear, look, hey, these are the metrics that matter. Incidentally, the way you build your scorecards is you go back and you look at your value creation process. And just like we said, who's responsible for this? You say, what metrics do we need to, to track to know this stage is working? Yeah. And, and so if you do that, you know, now we don't have vanity metrics. We have metrics that actually follow the flow of the value creation process. And so we decide, okay, these are the metrics we're tracking. This is, these are our targets, meaning this is what good is. We grant that ahead of time, not after the fact. And then we color code it, right? Green is we're on track or ahead. Yellow is we're a bit behind, but we think we can catch up and we got a plan. Red is we're way behind and we're freaking screwed. Okay. So yeah. for me as the CEO, I can look at that, those colors and I can ask questions. But what I found is if there's people who are uniquely responsible for that, when they change a color from, you know, yellow to red, they start coming up with ideas how to fix this without me even asking. Mm. Right. So that it's the scorecards and the manual nature of scorecards. That's why they're not just dashboards, not just aggregating data. I'm talking about scorecards that real people need to plot in data, you know, manually make decisions about, have insights, take action because of it. That's how we get ourselves out of being the only ones that can optimize. But the last area where entrepreneurs get stuck is they're the only ones who can make a high level decision. Mm. Right. And so the last piece that you need to automate after you've automated execution, after you've automated optimization, is to automate the decision-making process. Um, and to do that, you got to have a framework for decision-making. Uh, and we found yeah. that comes down to four things, right? Four things to have a framework for decision-making. Number one, team needs to know the goals. Where are we headed, right? Where are we headed? And, and so something comes through, does this get us closer to our stated business goals? This much revenue, this much profitability? Yes or no? If yes, great. Now let's go on to the next one. Does it align with our company purpose, our stated why? Our greater, you know, mission and vision. Does it align with that? You know, yeah. if the answer is yes, great. Next one. Um, does it align with our core values? Right. Is this going to cause us to deviate from one of our core values? Behave in a way that we've stated, you know, we're not going to behave. If the answer is no, nope, thumbs up there, great. The next piece is what we call strategic anchors. And this is simply a list of all your competitive advantages. What's the stuff that you're uniquely great at? And so we're going to ask, does this tap into? Are we playing to a known strength, right? If the answer is yes, great, then let's move forward. I've worked with a lot of entrepreneurs. I've worked with a lot of CEOs. I've run a lot of companies. I found every single decision that I made, I went through those four criteria. Does it align mm -hmm. with our goals? Does it align with our company purpose? Does it align with our values? Does it align with our strategic anchors? If the answer to all those things is yes, and I've made it clear, and we document it, we have a framework for it, and I've taught this to our leaders, they should be able to make decisions as good or better than you because they got your framework for decision making and they've got their in the trenches context that frankly you don't have. Once yeah. you've automated all that stuff, that's when you actually finally get to kick back and have some freedom. Um, but that, the, that last trap that I see entrepreneurs get caught in is they still are the ones that feel like they have to make every decision and you're not. And at scale, you can't. Yeah, man. Ryan, I think we could spend the next 10 hours diving into these this in more detail. And I know that's actually why you have Founders Board and Scalable.co, um, which we'll give a shout out to. But as we wrap things up today, I do want to ask you my final three questions. Before we get there, I love to leave the audience with three actionable takeaways from each episode. Here are the three takeaways that I noted, Ryan. Let me know if you think I'm missing something. So number one from today's episode, I would say like, 
if you haven't done this before, go do your value creation mapping, right? Could be your customer journey, but go back, hit rewind. Ryan walked through all the different like steps that you should consider in that value creation process. You need to do that. And honestly, I, I can say that now because Ryan and I jumped on a call about two years ago when COVID was tanking our business. And it was like, dude, where are you, where are you generating your revenue from? Are you making money from these blogs that you're trying to start? And this whole membership program was like, well, no, everything's coming from Amazon. Then why, why are you supporting this other side of the business? Right. And like, it was this finally like this aha moment, even though it's like kind of right in front of my face the whole time, like that simple exercise will reveal wonders for your business. Uh, action item number two, I would say is overcoming that imposter syndrome and being able to make those executive hires, so to speak, right? Those bigger hires, people that are experts in their space, you've got to be able to create the ROI, right? Or see and ca calculate that ROI that that team member can provide. You've got to just frankly, like shift your mindset um, and you've got to get used to it, especially if you want to be a business owner that can scale businesses. Last but not least is going to automating that value creation process, right? If you've, if you've already checked the boxes, you've got capable people on your team. Now it's time to automate that value creation and then especially establishing that decision-making framework that you talked there, uh, talked about there at the end, Ryan, anything I'm missing now seems like you got all the, got all the high points. All right. So last three questions, Ryan, let's go through it real quick. What's been the most influential book that you've read and why? Um, it's hard to pick a single one, so I'm not gonna, it's like asking me which kid is my favorite. Um, <laughs> but I would say the goal by Eli Goldratt, um, is a phenomenal book because that's where I learned about theory of constraints. Uh, basically, you know, any value creation process is only as efficient as its least efficient stage. And so after you do that value mapping, um, figure out which, where's the bottleneck and just focus on that one. And that, by the way, becomes the role of the CEO. Right. Find the bottleneck, dive in and try to fix the bottleneck, either through your own resources, through getting additional resources, opening up additional um, you know, investment channels, tapping your network, whatever needs to happen. Your job is to find the bottleneck and, and help to unclog the bottlenecks and build teams that can do uh, that same thing. So I would have to give the nod uh, to the goal. Awesome. I love that book as well. Read it. Read it back in college. Yeah. Next question. Again, the audiobook's pretty good, by the way. It's a long book. Uh, I recommend the audio uh, version as well. Good for long trips. That that is good. <laughs> that is good feedback. Uh, what is your favorite productivity tool or resource? I mentioned this earlier. It's these things: post-it notes, sticky notes. Um, so the way I do my to-do list, and I've tried a lot of different formats. I literally start off every single week, and I just make a very simple checklist. It's go, it goes right on my laptop. So wherever I am, I can see what I'm supposed to be working on. It's all by hand. I've tried every system in the world and no system has worked better than just sitting there on Sunday evening and saying, what must get done this week for me to feel good about my productivity this week? I write the things down. I leave some spots at the bottom for, you know, uh, the things that might come up on Monday. If, if things wind up getting uh, moved, I'll just draw a little arrow, you know, in the box. If it's done, I check it. Uh, I then keep a stack of all of my to-dos next to me so I can review what all did I, you know, get done in the last month or, uh, or year. And, um, that's how I kind of do my reviews. So for me, it's the, the humble sticky note. I love it. Simple yet effective. All right. Last question, Ryan, who is somebody that you admire or respect the most in the e-commerce space that other people should be paying attention to? 
So I'm going to kick it old school. Um, Pre-E, pre the E in, in e-commerce, and I'm going to say Jay Peterman. Mm. I don't know, are you familiar with Jay Peterman and the Jay Peterman catalogs? Uh, yes, I do know. I mean, it goes back to, uh, that's a Seinfeld reference, though, too, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Most people only know about Jay Peterman from basically him being this, like, ridiculous um, character who was Elaine's boss on Seinfeld, but this was a yep. real person. Um, I, I believe is still uh, still with us. Um, but what Jay Peterman did that I think was so brilliant is he created value, manifested value in very simple objects through the act of story. Um, and so if he could take just some random sweater and make somebody feel really great about owning the sweater, more importantly, giving people other stories to tell. Because when you bought something from the Peterman catalog, you didn't just feel like what you had was something unique and special. It it also made you unique and special because you had a story to tell about it. And I mm. think um, in, in the e-commerce world, right, um, everything we do can can very quickly become commoditized, whether it's Amazon declaring that what we do is basic and they're, therefore they're going to suck it in their Amazon basics category, whether it's getting knocked off by, um, you know, some AliExpress, uh, you know, somebody on AliExpress, just another competitor, like, what are the differentiators? People talk about brand as being the moat and the differentiator. I don't think it is anymore. I think ultimately mm. what it is is its story, right? The stories we can tell about um, uh, our, our products um, and, and the things that we sell, and not just the stories that we tell, but the stories that our products enable other people to tell. Um, that's what we need. We're all we're also boring and we're also bored. And so if we can uh, tell a great story, um, then I think the world's a better place. I would encourage you anytime uh, Jay Peterman catalogs come up for sale, old school ones on, on eBay, I buy them. And I've probably got the largest collection of Jay Peterman catalogs in the world. Um, and so that would be fascinating. Vote. I have never heard that name before used in, in this type of reference. And so this is awesome. I, definitely something I'll be checking out. Ryan, thank you so much. You've shared a lot of value with our listeners today. If people want to learn more about what you have going on at the scalable companies, uh, where should people go to learn more about you and uh, join your programs? Yeah, I mean, if you're looking for um, a you know a mastermind, a network of other seven-figure folks looking to scale um, to eight outside of e-commerce, so e-commerce folks, but also other business, I think there's tremendous learnings that can happen across business models. That's what we do in Founders Board. So yeah, check out foundersboard.com, and if it seems cool, then uh, apply. Uh, let us know in in the notes that you heard about us through. Uh, through this podcast and through the Hadleys here. And um, uh, that, that will only do favors because, you know, I like you, Josh. And um, mostly, though, you know, I like I like the actual boss. Uh, I like you <laughs> better, but, um, but you're good, too. So. Hey, well, I, I appreciate it. Sorry you got stuck with me today. But uh, I'll take it. I'll take it. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time, Ryan. We look forward to uh, following up with you later. But thanks for your advice today. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Visit ecombreakthrough.com for more information. If you've enjoyed today's episode, the best way you can show your appreciation is by clicking the subscribe button and quickly leaving a review. See you again next time.